8. Ultras ate up, and then remained quietly standing, with their beaks within the eighth of an inch of the putrid mass, without discovering it. A small rent was made in the canvas, and the offal was immediately discovered, the canvas was replaced by a fresh piece, and meat again put on it, and was again devoured by the vultures without their discovering the hidden mass on which they were trampling. These facts are attested by the signatures of six gentlemen, besides that of Mr. Bachman. Often when lying down to rest on the open plains, on looking upwards, I have seen carrion hawks sailing through the air at a great height. When the country is level I do not believe a space of the heavens, of more than 15 degrees above the horizon, is commonly viewed with any attention by a person either walking or on horseback, if such be the case, and the vulture is on the wing at a height of between three or 4,000 feet, before it could come within the range of vision, its distance in a straight line from the beholder's eye would be rather more than two British miles. Might it not thus readily be overlooked? When an animal is killed by the sportsman in a lonely valley, may he not all the while be watched from above by the sharp-sighted bird? And will not the manner of its descent proclaim throughout the district to the whole family of carrion feeders, that their prey is at hand? When the condors are wheeling in a flock round and round any spot, their flight is beautiful, except when rising from the ground. I do not recollect ever having seen one of these birds flap its wings, near Lima. I watched several for nearly half an hour, without once taking off my eyes, they moved in large curves, sweeping in circles, descending and ascending without giving a single flap, as they glided close over my head, I intently watched from an oblique position, the outlines of the separate and great terminal feathers of each wing, and these separate feathers, if there had been the least vibratory movement, would have appeared as if blended together, for they were seen distinct against the blue sky. The head and neck were moved frequently, and apparently with force, and the extended wings seemed to form the fulcrum on which the movements of the neck, body, and tail acted. If the bird wished to descend, the wings were for a moment collapsed, and when again expanded with an altered inclination, the momentum gained by the rapid descent seemed to urge the bird upwards with the even and steady movement of a paper kite. In the case of any bird soaring, its motion must be sufficiently rapid so that the action of the inclined surface of its body on the atmosphere may counterbalance its gravity. The force to keep up the momentum of a body moving in a horizontal plane in the air in which there is so little friction cannot be great, and this force is all that is wanted. The movement of the neck and body of the condor, we must suppose, is sufficient for this. However this may be, it is truly wonderful and beautiful to see so great a horde, hour after hour, without any apparent exertion wheeling and gliding over mountain and river. This singular bird is about the size of a raven, and is of a similar color, but its feathers had a more scaly appearance, from being margined with a different shade of glossy blue. It is also allied to the crows in its structure, being very similar to them in its feet and bill. On its head it bears a crest, different from that of any other bird. It is formed of feathers more than two inches long, very thickly set, and with hairy plumes curving over at the end. These can be laid back so as to be hardly visible, or can be erected and spread out on every side, forming a hemispherical, or rather a hemi-ellipsoidal dome, completely covering the head, and even reaching beyond the point of the beak, the individual feathers then stand out something like the down-bearing seeds of the dandelion. Besides this, there is another ornamental appendage on the breast, formed by a fleshy tubercle, as thick as a quill and an inch and a half long, which hangs down from the neck and is thickly covered with glossy feathers, forming a large pendant plume or tassel. This also the bird can either press to its breast, 
so as to be scarcely visible, or can swell out, so as almost to conceal the forepart of its body. In the female the crest and the neck plume are less developed, and she is altogether a smaller and much less handsome bird. It inhabits the flooded islands of the Rio Negro and the Salimos, never appearing on the mainland. It feeds on fruits, and utters a loud, hoarse cry, like some deep musical instrument, whence its Indian name, where a mendy, trumpet bird, the whole of the neck, where the plume of feathers springs from, is covered internally with a thick coat of hard, muscular fat, very difficult to be cleaned away, which in preparing the skins, must be done, as it would putrefy, and cause the feathers to drop off, the birds are tolerably abundant, but are shy, and perch on the highest trees, and, being very muscular, will not fall unless severely wounded, hummingbirds from the naturalist in Nicaragua, by Thomas G. Belt, FGS, soon after crossing the muddy Artigua below Pavon, a beautifully clear and sparkling brook is reached, coming down to join its pure waters with the soiled river below, in the evening this was a favorite resort of many birds that came to drink at the pellucid stream, or catch insects playing above the water, Amongst the last was the beautiful blue, green and white hummingbird, the head and neck deep metallic blue, bordered on the back by a pure white collar over the shoulders, followed by deep metallic green, on the underside the blue neck is succeeded by green, the green from the center of the breast to the end of the tail by pure white, the tail can be expanded to a half circle, and each feather widening towards the end makes the semicircle complete around the edge, when catching the ephemeridae that play above the water, the tail is not expanded, it is reserved for times of courtship. I have seen the female sitting quietly on a branch, and two males displaying their charms in front of her. One would shoot up like a rocket, then suddenly expanding the snow-white tail like an inverted parachute, slowly descend in front of her, turning round gradually to show off both back and front. The effect was heightened by the wings being invisible from a distance of a few yards, both from their great velocity of movement and from not having the metallic luster of the rest of the body. The expanded white tail covered more space than all the rest of the bird, and was evidently the grand feature in the performance. Whilst one was descending, the other would shoot up and come slowly down expanded. The entertainment would end in a fight between the two performers, but whether the most beautiful or the most pugnacious was the accepted sweeter, I know not. Another fine hummingbird seen about this brook was the long-billed, fire-throat Heliomaster pelidiceps, Gould, generally seen probing long narrow throat red flowers, forming, with their attractive nectar, complete traps for the small insects on which the hummingbirds feed, the bird returning the favor by carrying the pollen of one flower to another, a third species, also seen at this brook, Petasophra delphini, glass, is of a dull brown color, with brilliant ear feathers and metallic green throat, both it and the Florishidum alive or of our short build, generally catching flying insects, and do not frequent flowers so much as other hummingbirds. I have seen the Petisophora fly into the center of a dancing column of midges and rapidly darting first at one and then at another secure half a dozen of the tiny flies before the column was broken up, then retire to a branch and wait until it was ray formed, when it made another sudden descent on them. I have no doubt many hummingbirds suck the honey from flowers, as I have seen it exude from their bills when shot, but others do not frequent them and the principal food of all is small insects, I have examined scores of them, and never without finding insects in their crops, their generally long bills have been spoken of by some naturalists as tubes into which they suck the honey by a piston-like movement of the tongue, 
but such an in the usual way would be just as effective, and I am satisfied that this is not the primary use of the tongue, nor of the mechanism which enables it to be exerted to a great length beyond the end of the bill. The tongue, for one half of its length, is semi-horny and cleft in two. The two halves are laid flat against each other when at rest, but can be separated at the will of the bird and form a delicate pliable pair of forceps, most admirably adapted for picking out minute insects from amongst the stamens of the flowers, the foundations of a wonderful city from the life of the bees, by Maurice M.A.D.E.R.I.N.C.K. Translated by Marie Josephine Welsh. Here in their new home there is nothing not a drop of honey nor a single landmark in the shape of a piece of wax. The bee has no date and no starting point. He has nothing but the desolate nakedness of the walls and the roof of an immense building. The walls are round and smooth, but all is dark within. The bee does not understand useless regrets, or if he does, he does not encumber himself with them. Far from being discouraged by the conditions which now confront him, he is more determined than ever. The hive is no sooner set up in its proper place than the disorder of the crowd begins to diminish and one sees in the swarming multitude clear and definite divisions which take shape in a most unexpected manner. The larger part of the bees, acting precisely like an army which is obeying the definite orders of its officer, at once begins to form thick columns along the whole length of the vertical partitions of the hive. The first to arrive at the top hang on to the arch by the claws of their hind legs. Those who come after attach themselves to the first and so on till long chains are formed which serve as bridges for the ever-mounting crowd to pass over. Little by little these chains are multiplied with indefinite reinforcements and interlacing each other become garlands, which, owing to the enormous and uninterrupted mounting of the bees upon them, are transformed into a thick triangular curtain, or rather into a sort of compact reversed cone, the point of which is attached to the top of the hive, the base of which is about two-thirds of the total height of the hive, then the last peak which would appear to be summoned by some interior voice to join this group, mounts this curtain, which is hung in the darkness, and little by little every movement among the vast crowd ceases, and the strange reversed cone remains for many hours in a silence which might be called religious, and in a statuesqueness which in such a mass of life is almost startling, waiting for the arrival of the mystery of the wax, while this is going on without taking any notice of the wonderful curtain from out of whose folds so magic a gift will come without even appearing to be tempted to attach themselves to it. The rest of the bees, that is all those who are on the floor of the hive, begin to examine the building and to undertake the work which is necessary to be done. The floor is carefully swept. Dead leaves, twigs, grains of sand are transferred to a considerable distance one by one. For bees have an absolute mania for cleanliness, so much is this the case that in the winter, when the extremely cold weather prevents them from taking what the lovers know as their flight of cleanliness, rather than soil the interior of the hive they perish in enormous numbers, victims of a disease of the stomach. After this cleaning up is done these same bees set themselves to a work to carefully close up every opening which is round about the lower part of the hive. Finally when every crack has been carefully looked over, filled up and covered with propolis, they begin to varnish the whole of the interior sides. By this time guardians are placed at the entrance of the hive, and very soon a number of the working bees start on their first trip to the fields and begin to come back laden with nectar and pollen. Let us now lift up, so far as we may, one of the folds of the scarlet curtain in the midst of which the swarm is beginning to produce that strange exudotion which is almost as white as snow, and is lighter than the down on a bird's breast. The wax which is now being made does not resemble at all that with which we are acquainted. It is colorless 
and may be said to be imponderable. It is the very soul of the honey, which in its turn is the very spirit of the flowers, evolved by the bees in a species of silent and motionless incantation. It is very difficult to follow the various phases of the secretion and of the manner in which the wax is evolved by the swarm which is just beginning to build. The operation takes place in the midst of a dense crowd which becomes constantly more and more dense, thus producing a temperature favorable to the exudation of the wax in its first stage. Huber, who was the first to study these operations with marvelous patience, and sometimes not without personal danger, has written more than 50 pages on the subject, but they are very confused, for myself, as I am not writing a scientific book. I shall confine myself to describing what anybody can see if he will watch the movements of a swarm in a glass hive. At the same time I shall not fail to avail myself of Huber's studies whenever they may prove to be of service. We must admit at the very outset that the process by which the honey is transformed into a wax in the bodies of this mysterious curtain of bees is still hidden in mystery. All that we know is that after about 18 or 24 hours in a temperature so high that one might almost imagine there was a fire in the hive. Small, white, transparent scales appear at the opening of the four little pockets which are to be found on each side of the abdomen of the bee. When the larger part of those who form the reversed cone had their abdomens decorated with these little ivory plates, one of them may be seen, as if under the influence of a sudden inspiration, to detach itself from the crowd and climb over the backs of its passive brethren until it reaches the apex of the cupola of the hive, that is shading herself firmly to the top. She immediately sets to a work to brush away those of her neighbors who may interfere with her movements. Then she seizes with her mouth one of the eight scales on the side of her abdomen and chews it, clips it, draws it out, steeps it in saliva, kneads it, crushes it, and makes it again into shape as dexterously as a carpenter would handle a piece of veneering. Then when the substance has been treated so as to bring it to the desired size and to the desired consistency, it is affixed to the very summit of the interior of the dome. And thus the first stone is laid of the new city, or rather the keystone of the new city is placed in the arch, for we are considering a city turned upside down, which descends from the sky and which does not arise from the bosom of the earth as do terrestrial cities. Then she proceeds to apply to this keystone more of the wax which she takes from her body, and having given to the whole of her part of the work one last finishing stroke, she retires as quickly as she came and is lost in the crowd. Another replaces her and immediately takes up the work where she has left it off, adds her own to it, puts that right which appears to her to be not in conformity with the general plan, and disappears in her turn, while a third and a fourth and a fifth succeed her in a series of sudden and inspired apparitions, not one of whom finishes a piece of work, but all bring to it their common share. Now there hangs from the top of the vault a small block of wax which is yet without form. As soon as it appears to be thick enough there comes out of the group another bee bearing an entirely different aspect from that of those which have preceded it. One may well believe on seeing the certainty, the determination, with which he goes about his work and the manner in which those who stand round about him look on, that he is an expert engineer who has come to construct in space the place which the first cell shall occupy, the cell from which must mathematically depend everything which is afterwards constructed, whatever he may be. This bee belongs to a class of the sculpturing, of chisel working bees who produce no wax and whose function seems to be to employ the materials with which the others furnish them. This bee then chooses the place of the first cell. She digs for a moment in the block of wax which has already been placed in position, and builds up the side of the cell with the wax that she picks from the cavity. Then in exactly the same way as her predecessors have done, 
she suddenly leaves the work she has designed, another impatient worker replaces her and carries it on another step, which is finished by a third one. In the meantime others are working round about her according to the same method of division of labor until the outer sides of each wall is finished. It would almost seem that an essential law of the hive was that every worker should take a pride in its work, and that all the work should be done in common, and so to speak, unanimously, in order that the fraternal spirit should not be disturbed by a sense of jealousy. Very soon the outline of the comb may be seen, in form it is still lenticular for the little prismatic tubes of which it is composed are unequally prolonged, and they diminish as they get away from the center towards the extremities. At this moment it might be compared, both in form and in thickness, to a human tongue hanging down from two of the sides of the hexagonal cells which are placed back to back. As soon as the first cells are constructed, the workers add a roof to the second and so on to the third and to the fourth. These sets of cells are divided by irregular intervals and they are calculated in such a manner that when they are made to receive their full complement, the bees always have room enough to move about between the parallel walls of the honeycombs. It follows then that in making their original plan the different thicknesses of every honeycomb must be fixed upon, and at the same time the alleyways which separate each must be different in turn, and this width must be twice the height of a bee since they have to pass each other between the upright combs, but even the bees are not infallible and they do not always work with exact mechanical certainty. When they find themselves in a difficult place they sometimes make very great blunders. One often finds that they leave too much, and often too little, space between the honeycombs, and they remedy these faults as well as they can sometimes in finishing the comb which is too near another in an oblique line, or sometimes when they have left too much space they interpose a smaller comb between it. Reamer, on the subject, says, since these sometimes make mistakes and rectify them, this must be a proof that they possess the power of reason. It is known that these make four different kinds of cells. There are first the royal cells, which are exceptional and are of acorn shape. Then there are the large cells in which the male bees are reared, and in which provisions are stored when the flowers furnish forth of their abundance. Then there are the little cells which may be called the cradles of the working bees, which are also employed as ordinary storerooms. These generally occupy about eight-tenths of the total surface of the combs in a hive, and finally there are a certain number of what may be called transition cells. Although these latter are inevitably irregular, the dimensions of the second or third type are so well calculated that when the decimal system was first established, and people were seeking an incontestable standard of measurement, it was the cell of the bee which was proposed first of all by Reamer. Each one of these cells is an hexagonal tube placed upon a pyramid form and each honeycomb is formed of two strata of these tubes, base to base, in such a way that the three lozenges which make the pyramid-like base of one cell form at the same time the pyramid-like bases of the three cells on the other side. In these prismatic tubes the honey is stored away and so that the honey shall not trickle out as it would be likely to do if they were built strictly horizontal they are tilted up at the outer edge of an angle of four or five degrees. Besides the saving in wax, says Reamer, speaking of this marvelous building, which is effected by this arrangement of the cells, besides the fact that by this plan the comb may be filled without a single gap. There are other advantages in the way of the solidity thus given. Every possible advantage in the way of the solidity of each cell is brought about by the manner of its construction, and by its place with reference to the rest of the cells in the comb. Students of geometry know, says Dr. Reed, that there are only three shapes that can be employed to divide a surface into uniform spaces, that shall be regular in shape, and without interstices, they are the equilateral triangle, 
the square, and the regular hexagon, which latter, in the matter of cell construction, is superior to the two first both from the point of view of strength and utility, and it is just this form that the bees had adopted, precisely as though its advantages were familiar to them. Furthermore, the bottoms of the cells form three planes meeting at one point, and it has been demonstrated that both in economy of labor and material this system of construction is the best again. The angle of the inclination of the planes affects this question of economy, this problem has been solved by the bees and confirmed by McLaurin by abstruse mathematical calculations published in the Transactions of the Royal Society of London. Of course I do not suppose for a moment that the bees themselves had made these calculations, but on the other hand I do not believe that chance, or accidental circumstance has brought about, these results, the wasps, for instance, have built hexagonal cells, but they have not displayed such ingenuity as the bees have done, their combs have only one course of cells, and they have not the foundation which serves the bees for their double rows, hence there is less strength, more irregularity, and a loss of time, of material, and of room, which really means that a quarter of the labor employed and a third of the space occupied is lost. We also find certain other domesticated bees, not so far progressed in civilization, which only build one row of cells for rearing their young, and which support horizontal combs one above another on costly columns of wax. Their food store cells, are like a row of round pots, and the bees make but a clumsy use of the spaces between them. Indeed, when we compare their city with the wonderful city of the bees of which we are speaking, it is like comparing a row of huts with a modern laid-out city. If the result is not charming, it is severely logical, and demonstrates the genius of the race which is forever fighting to get the most out of matter, space, and time. Buffon had a theory which has been revived once more, that the bees did not intend to make hexagonal cells, but rather round ones, and that owing to the crowding of the workers all around, the round ones became hexagonal. It is said also that crystals, fish scales of certain kinds, soap bubbles, etc. follow the same law, and Buffon advances this experiment to prove it. Take a vessel and fill it full with peas or any other round grains. Pour as much water upon them as will fill the spaces between them. Close the vessel tightly, and boil the water. It will be found that the round peas have become six-sided. One sees clearly that this must be so from purely mechanical causes. Each one of the round grains tends in the course of swelling as it boils to fill up the utmost space that it can and by the extension and pressure of all alike they become hexagonal. Each bee wishes to occupy as much room as possible in its allotted space. Therefore as the bodies of the bees are round or cylindrical, their cells become hexagonal because of the extension and pressure of all alike. Here then we see reciprocal obstacles working a wonder, somewhat in the same way perhaps as the vices of men bring about a general virtue, so that the race odious, often so far as individuals are concerned, is tolerable in the mass. Brahman, Carby, and Spence and others claim that the observations of soap bubbles and peas prove nothing in this connection, for the effect of compression is only to produce irregular hexagonal forms, and does not explain the earlier form of the base of the cells. To this one might rejoin that there are more ways than one of dealing with the blind law of necessity, for the wasp and the bumblebee and many other species in similar circumstances and with the same end in view, arrive at very different, and manifestly inferior. Results. Indeed it might be said further that even if the bee cells did conform to the laws of crystal azotion as in the case of snow, or buffoons soap bubbles, or boiled peas, they show also in their general symmetry, in their well-determined angle of inclination, 
etc. that there are many other laws not followed by inert matter to which they also conform. In order to assure myself that the hexagonal form of the cell was the outcome of the bee brain, I cut out from the center of a honeycomb a round piece not quite so large as a silver dollar, containing both brood cells and honey cells. I cut into this disc, at the point where the pyramidal bases of the cells were joined, and I fixed on the base of the section thus exposed a piece of tin of the same size, and so stout that the bees could not bend or twist it. Then I replaced the disc of comb, with the piece of tin as described. One side of the comb showed, of course, nothing extraordinary, but on the other side was to be seen a hole at the bottom of which was a round piece of tin occupying the place of about thirty cells. At first the bees were disconcerted, and came in crowds to examine and study this wonderful abyss. For some days they wandered about it in agitation without coming to any decision. But as I fed them well every evening, the time soon came when they needed more cells in which to store their provisions. Then most likely the famous engineers, the sculptors, and the wax makers, were summoned to show the way to fill up this useless chasm. A heavy curtain, or garland, of the wax making these covered the spot so as to develop the necessary heat. Others went down into the hole and began the work of solidly fixing the metal in place by means of little claws of wax around its entire circumference, that is shading them to the walls of the cells which surrounded it. Then they set to a work to make three or four cells in the upper part of the disc, that is shading them to these waxen claws. Each of these new cells was more or less unfinished at the top, so as to leave material wherewith to fasten it to the next cell, but below on the piece of tin was always three very clear and precise angles from which would grow the three upright lines which regularly marked the outline of the first half of the next cell. After about 48 hours, although three or four bees at most could work at the same time in the opening, the whole surface of the piece of tin was covered with the outlines of the new cells. They were certainly somewhat less regular than those in an ordinary comb, but they were all perfectly hexagonal, not a line was bent, not an angle out of shape. Nevertheless all the ordinary conditions of the life were changed. The cells were not dug out of a block of wax as Hubbard described, nor were they made according to Darwin, circular at first, and then made into hexagons by the pressure of their neighbors. Here was no question of reciprocal obstacles, seeing that the cells were made one by one, and these first outlines were sketched on a kind of table. It would appear therefore that the hexagonal form is not the result of any mechanical necessity but that it forms the plan resulting from the experience, the intelligence, and the will of the bee. Another curious thing which I accidentally noticed was that the cells built upon the tin were not provided with any other floor than the tin itself. The engineers of the working party evidently reasoned that the tin was sufficient to retain the liquid honey, and that it was not necessary, therefore, to align it with wax. But a little while after, when some honey was placed in the cell, they probably found that the metal effected some change in it, for upon taking counsel together they covered the surface of the tin with a kind of diaphanous varnish. If we wish to throw light on all the secrets of this geometrical architecture, we shall find many more interesting questions to examine for example, that of the form of the first cells, which are attached to the roof of the hive a form which is modified so that the cells can fit its curve and touch the roof at the greatest possible number of points. It would be necessary to notice also, not only the direction in which the main streets of the hive run, but the alleyways and passages which run in and out and around the comb, as much for the circulation of the air as for the traffic, and it should be remarked that these are planned so as to avoid long detours or confusion in the traffic. Before we leave this subject let us, only for a minute, 
stop to consider the wonderful and mysterious way in which the bees make their plans and work together when they are occupied in carving out their cells, on both sides of the comb, where neither can see the other, look through one of these transparent combs, and you will see clearly and sharply cut out in this diaphanous wax a network of prisms arranged in so perfectly fitting a manner that one might think they were stamped out of steel. Those who have never seen the inside of a hive can have little idea of the appearance of these honeycombs. Let us take a countryman's hive in which the bee has been left free to work as he pleases. This bell-like shape is divided from top to bottom by five, six, eight, and sometimes ten slices of wax, so to speak, perfectly parallel with each other, which take the exact shape of the curve of the walls of the hive. Between each one of these slices is a space of about half an inch in which the bees move about. When they begin to build one of these slices at the top of the hive, the wall of wax is quite thick, and hides entirely the 50 or 60 bees who are working on one side from the 50 or 60 at work on the other, unless they have a sight which can pierce the most opaque bodies, neither can see what is doing on the other side, nevertheless, a bee on one side, 